0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone. This is Andrew Keen talking to you, as always, from my little hill between the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco and the Castro, where I look out on the Pacific ocean, looking at the future, uh, the world, at least from my perspective, seems a little stuck at the moment on October the 12th, 2021. Um, there's a piece, uh, that I found on the internet. That's from a Californian dock worker, uh, suggesting record cargo ship backlogs, uh, The coast, the Pacific coast of San Francisco, and particularly Los Angeles now, is is full of ships. Uh, Stuck. Record backlog of cargo ships at California ports, the headlines tell us. Uh, Everything seems stuck at the moment. Uh, uh, The Wall Street Journal reports on LOL LOL dolls that are stuck in the supply chain. Uh, The supply chains all around the world are stuck because of the problem of, of 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 products and ships and aircrafts not being able to move because of the pandemic uh, americans are stuck uh, over the weekend uh, southwest airlines shut down and lots of people were stuck uh, at uh regional airports all over america uh but the real nature of the world might not be that we're stuck rather we're on the move mike guest today on the show is an old friend. He's been on the show several times before over the years when it was a TechCrunch show and as a Lit Hub show. Uh, Parag Khanna is one of the world's leading uh, geographers, one of the world's leading thinkers, I think, on globalization and mobility. And he has a new book out appropriately called Move in Our Age of Being Stuck. And he's talking to me from uh, the most movement-orientated place, perhaps on Earth, Singapore, where he lives, or at least he resides, because I know he's always on the move. Uh, Parag, are we stuck or are we moving? We're moving. We're
1: moving. Great to see you again, Andrew. How are you?
0: Good, good, good. Well, it's great to see you. Um, So you have this new book out, Parag, which actually just got excerpted on LitHub, so people will have an opportunity to read bits of it. Um, what, what is your core argument in MOVE? Particularly because you begin the book um, uh, with uh, the, the, the beginning of the book, the prologue, you say, where will you live in 2050? And you say that uh, uh, you, you're talking about the COVID times. Uh, April 2020 will forever be remembered as the month the world stood still. The Economist summed it up in one word, Closed. So
1: why is the world open rather than closed? Well, the pandemic was such an extraordinary event. And this lockdown, you know, April 2020, but that's obviously a month that's representative of the last year and a half as a whole, has been the single most coordinated act by governments and societies in the history of our species. And it was to shut things down, not to open them up. But it obviously was a great anomaly, because if you think about the trends before the pandemic, uh, the year 2019 marked a high point, an absolute high point in cross-border human migration, right? Almost one and a half billion people crossed borders in 2019. So yes, it's remarkable how somewhat coordinatedly it was all brought to a standstill. But there's also, and we're starting to feel it now, a great reopening. But my book really has nothing to do whatsoever with the pandemic it's really about how humanity responds to complexity we've had pandemics in the past and mankind continues to you know mass migrations continue but it's also not just about migrations again it's about human geography you put up that that slide of the first page of the book where will you live in 2050 i set out to answer that question with as much precision as possible which is to say what will be the map of human geography 30 years from now and what is the story of how we got to where we will be and why are we where we will be and you can't answer that question without looking at everything from geopolitics to natural resources to climate change to demographics economics and so forth so I combined all of those mega trends into a kind of complex analysis of the future and I posit a range of scenarios as to where we might be and and why. And that's really what this book is about. It's really about the future of human geography, which, as I point out in the book, is not just, uh, you know, this sort of meteorology, right? The day-to-day of how many people moved here and how many people moved there. Human geography is more like climatology. It's a deep science of understanding our human species adaptation to this planet. And that's really what this book is about.
0: You're a map guy, Parag. Where to now? Got some lovely maps in the book. It's a beautiful book. And you're a guy always on the move. We're always bumping into one another. In the pre-show, we remembered that we last physically saw one another in Munich at DLD just before the pandemic, and we're always bumping into one another at international conferences, international airports. What is it about movement that attracts you? You are perhaps of all the, the global elite of, of, of writers and speakers and consultants. You're the most globalist person of all. What is it, uh, Parag, about um, movement that you find so attractive and essential? It seems as if you're
1: almost addicted to it. <laughs> I, I was born to do it. That doesn't mean I'm necessarily uh, addicted to it in a chemical uh, sense, but my family raised me this way, you know, sort of is the short answer. I mean, there I don't this is not an autobiographical book, but there are sections where I talk a little bit about But
0: it, how- it may not be autobiographical, but there is ideology there, whether you like it or not. And you are a proponent when you peel away some of the arguments, you are suggesting that migration is inevitable, unavoidable, but also not necessarily right. a bad thing. Right.
1: So, you know, again, so biographically, the fact that my life has been a migratory kind of story, you know, that of my family is actually very typical of hundreds of millions of people. So my role is, you know, merely as an analytical statement, quite frankly, that I am my family's history is very similar to yours and pretty much. Everyone else is in human history, which is that we have been economic migrants at some point or the other, seeking a better life. Seeking, simply put, as I put it in kind of, you know, Tom Friedman-esque terms in the book, the right combination of latitude, altitude, and attitude, right? And that's what we as human beings want. We're seeking environmental stability, social stability, geopolitical stability, whatever the case may be. It was ever thus for hundreds of thousands of years. So the notion as you know as you began as well that we have been stuck we have been sedentary well that's a very narrow portion of human history as a whole in terms of you know millennia of history and it's certainly a very temporal story in terms of right now. The bigger picture is That the last several centuries, in every one of the last several centuries, the decimal place actually keeps shifting. It's not just millions of people who move. It's not just tens of of millions of people who move. It's not just hundreds of millions of people who move, which was the case in the 20th century. It is not illogical at all, and it's not ideological even remotely, to assess and forecast that in this century, well over a billion people will move for the range of reasons that I spell out. Yeah,
0: I take um, that point that a billion people will move, but that means that seven or eight billion or 10 billion won't move. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know you're familiar with the work of David Goodhart. He had an interesting book out a few years ago called The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics, which is about this division in the world between what he calls the anywheres and the somewheres, people who are rooted and people who aren't. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, We also had Tom Zola on the show uh, about a year ago. He's a uh, Los Angeles-based travel writer, and he has a really interesting take on American geography. He wrote uh, in his book about America, the American concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift place is less important than it has ever been to those who can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. What's your take, Parag, on this um, physio between the somewheres and the everywheres in Goodhart's language?
1: Well, let me say that both of those authors that you've cited, I mean, they're, they're looking at a very narrow geography and a very narrow demographic quite frankly, and it's not uncommon for writers in America or Britain to kind of riify the local experience, the parochial experience of their country, of their society, to include the entire world. I'm, however, writing a species level book, Andrew, this is a book about 8 billion people. So let me go back to your point that there are going to be billions who will not move. And it's something that I very explicitly address at the beginning of the book first of all we're reaching a global demographic plateau right the world population is reaching its peak at eight you know maybe nine nine billion people is the maximum number of people that will ever live at the same time on this planet and that 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 date is approaching very very soon i'm concerned about all of them not about whether or not you're a. Uh, londoner who feels offended that because of brexit some people have changed their citizenship and they're anywhere whereas you know you might be a somewhere you know and the role of digital nomads in the united states and whether or not a young software programmer can move to you know costa rica i cover all of that in this book but i don't pretend for a second that that conversation is representative of all of us right so my book is actually about all of us and I'm very concerned about billions, not just millions. So, to, to get straight back to your point, I talk in the beginning about how roughly, back of the envelope here, about four to five billion of those people will probably never make it out, right, of where they live. They might be too old, they might be unwell, too poor, no opportunity, no desire, even potentially, uh, to leave where they are. But the four of the four billion people that remain who will constitute this circulating, you know, kind of humanity, most of those people are young. And I'm explicitly concerned about the global youth, which is numbers four to five billion people. Because if you want to answer that question, where will we, the human species, be in 2050? You don't answer that question by looking at the movements and attitudes of today's 80-year-olds or 70-year-olds. You have to look at youth. So as much as I think that there's a very interesting and and it's a conversation that I'm very actively involved in sociologically and politically about somewheres versus anywheres, about globalists and nationalists and that sort of thing, I think that we would be going really down the wrong path in pretending that that is a representative global conversation. And I I, quite frankly, I I conduct an all out demolition. Uh, I I don't know if we want to due to any spoilers in this conversation, of the very idea that populist nationalism is somehow representative of even Western societies as a whole. Because when people say that, as, as David might be saying, and by the way, full, you know, I'm a huge fan of his. He's actually one of my first editors of lengthy essays that I wrote for The Prospect, and I think he's a wonderful and highly intelligent uh, person. I have nothing but respect for him. However, it's so <laughs> It's always the
0: however, Parag, that, that's interesting
1: yeah. here. Well, again, it's just geographically circumscribed. And, and, and you know, you call... But, but me, in reality, well,
0: I, I take the point, perhaps, but in, the reality of politics, in at least in 2021, is whether we're in Hungary or Turkey or the Philippines or Russia or America or Brazil, everyone is reacting, for better or worse, against globaliz- globalization. And there is a very strong movement to fetishize the some ways to fetishize, uh, uh, fetishize tradition and staying in one place
1: rather than moving. So it's not something some, you can just some ignore. Some people do that, Andrew, and Victor Orban may do that, and Bolsonaro may do that. And again, as I want, I make perfectly clear through through quite a lot of data in the book, these same places that you can cite as examples of somewhere-ism, of nationalism, of parochialism, as sedentary-ness, Are exactly the same places that are the top sources of emigration, the places that absolutely no intelligent, educated, qualified person wants to stay in because they would rather leave. And I find including America in that. Well, so that's the crazy thing. The number of American expatriates, myself included, uh, has you know more than doubled since before the financial crisis. It stands at nearly 10 million people today. And that's before the rise of all of this remote work uh, that the pandemic has now enabled. So it remains to be seen where that number will go. And it's everything from young people escaping student debt to remote workers and digital nomads to elderly retirees who can't afford the roof over their heads and so they're moving to the Caribbean. Um, So there's all demographics involved. And even if it did not capture the US, though in fact my data does, You'd still have the entire world, you know, to talk about in which, for example, when you look at Modi in India and you say, well, look at the nationalism, its politics. I'm not saying that there isn't nationalism and parochialism in Indian politics. I follow it every single day. What I am saying is, hmm, isn't it interesting that this same country that's that in the Western discourse stands for the return of nationalism as a guiding ideology for people happen to be the places that the people are getting the hell out of as fast as they possibly can, which is a big contributor to my argument about the constant shift of human populations in response to these political stimuli that they don't like. So one of the chapters, uh, Andrew, that I have in the book is about conscription, right? And it's so interesting that the countries you cited, like Turkey um, and others that, that we haven't gotten to yet, um, uh, countries that have conscription, are the with the rite of passage, for every 18-year-old male in every one of those countries is to escape conscription. Now, it would stand to reason that if you're a nationalist, right, and you're ideologically wedded to your home country, you would want to serve your country at least for six to nine months for military service. But of course, no young man that I've ever met and that I've reported on, and I, I look at, again, many countries in this book, I look at every country in the world that has conscription. And I use this as, I think, a very logical, rational case study for how strong is this somewhere ism. And I find it to be utterly bunk, utterly bunk, Andrew. So the mistake we're making is to conflate the nation and the leader with the sentiments of the public, because again, if that were true, people wouldn't be getting the hell out of Poland or Romania or Bulgaria or Hungary, right, or Turkey or Brazil or India at the first possible opportunity. So I, I personally never make the mistake of conflating Brexit with British people, Trump with American people, Duterte with Filipinos, Turks with Erdogan, and so on.
0: Is, uh, is that what you mean? You, you talk about vacated states. You have some interesting predictions of places where people are just simply going to leave. They're going to, um, they're going to evacuate. Um, what, what is a, a vacated state, Parag? And, and why are we going to have those in the future?
1: Well, so actually, this is a much more dire scenario. The page you're showing uh, really gets towards the end of the book. When I look at the, the, the full, the, the most negative possible scenario around climate change and look at countries that become utterly unlivable, and I give a few potential examples, or it's not even just necessarily a country per se, but it could be a whole territory. It could be Bolivia could be Turkmenistan. It could be certain African countries. Once you have no more water, people cannot live somewhere. Once the, temper- once the wet bulb effect has kicked in permanently in the temperature of a certain location, people cannot live there and people will leave. And in a, in a certain state will cease to meet the legal definition of statehood which is that you have a permanent settled population and are recognized mutually by other governments. So what will become of these geographies is an extreme scenario that I ponder, you know, in this book. And what will be the role of that geography in the global division of labor? Will it still have minerals that we will go and mine and extract? Will it be a place where we will dump nuclear waste? Who knows what will become of these places, but it's an extreme scenario. And yes, there are countries, uh, Andrew, that in the context of the world's fertility decline and plateau and depopulation due to mortality and emigration have populations that are shrinking, you know, so significantly that you actually do wonder whether they, at what point they will cease to be viable States. And I look at a place like Bulgaria, you know, which is a very small country by population and is depopulating very quickly because no one wants to stay there and there's only a few million people left in what is actually from a climatological standpoint, quite a livable place, right? With, you know, the Danube river, um, you know, forests, agriculture and so forth. And one of the things I point out in the book is that Bulgarians may vacate their own country and they may simply die off due to low fertility. But at some point in the future, gradually there will be human beings residing in this livable geography right, from a climatological standpoint, a livable place known as Bulgaria, and they may not be Bulgarian. And that may be very offensive to the country's own leadership today, to which I say, too bad, right? Because when you study... But I'm not
0: sure whether Bulgarians would agree. Parag, um, uh, let's talk about, you, you mentioned before the global war for youth um you made an interesting speech at the at new york times athens democracy forum um earlier this month what is the connection between movement and youth is this really a book about demographics and um uh the the uh, the, 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 the increasing division if not between somewheres and nowheres
1: rather between the old and the young the the, the um the discrepancy or the the, mis, the the sort of misalignment in values between the old and the young is a very central theme in the book. And I gave you the kind of you know the sort of numerically how important the global youth population is, um, and one of the very interesting sociological phenomena that's occurred today is that the world's young people have more in common in terms of their values. They a survey after survey show us reveal that they that their values are mobility, connectivity, sustainability, whereas old people may identify more with ethnicity, nationality, and other traditional forms of identity. So what's happened is that instead of people having vertical identities, right, aligned to their national geography, um, instead you have more horizontal identities, which are generational. Or about causes and movements and other other sorts of things. So that is a significant shift in the world today. So I do examine the common attitudes of youth across the world, irrespective of rich, poor, north, south, east, west and what it tells us about where they want to go, what kinds of places are going to win that war for talent. You you just showed, for example, the, um, the image from a, a talk I just gave for the Athens Democracy Forum uh, last week. And I said, you know, the winners and losers of the 21st century can be identified with ease because all you have to do is look at where today's young people are going. And the reason that's more important than ever before is because if our children are not having children, then today's youth are both the present and the future. They are the most important generation of today and also the most important generation of tomorrow. So where they go determines which countries have citizens, taxpayers, workers, entrepreneurs, caregivers, you name it. So it's extremely important that we focus the conversation as much as possible on the attitudes of youth. And guess what, Andrew, I can cite you 4 billion people who don't view the world in terms of I'm a somewhere versus I'm an anywhere. So, you know, just to be clear about what value systems, what attitudes and what methodologies are more useful in understanding the future, I would say that looking at youth um, mobility and youth perspectives is perhaps the most significant lens we can use.
0: Uh, Parag, you've made a name for yourself for suggesting, uh, I think in, a, in your last book or a book before last, that the future is essentially Asian or Asia. Uh, you have a, 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 an interesting piece out, which is connected with MOVE, which suggests that um, uh, if, and I'm quoting it here, if there is a political system that has emerged victorious from the coronavirus pandemic, it is Asian democratic technocracy. Um is that an argument that's connected with move? Is the real victor in this new century of movement Asian demo what you call Asian tech technocratic democracy? Obviously, very different from the Chinese system, more like perhaps Taiwan or, um, uh, or Japan, Singapore Japan is, of course, society.
1: Yeah, so well, this is an argument I've been making actually for about you know, more than 15 years, it just so happens that at this point, it seems to be, has become more of a consensus view, quite frankly. And I noticed this across the US and even Canada and, and, uh, and even, you know, Western Europe, more and more people are saying, gee, we've got a lot to learn from those countries that managed to contain COVID, that had low mortality rates, where everyone simply wore masks and, you know, did contact tracing apps and, you know, they, they've maintained social solidarity throughout this and so on. What can we learn from them? Well, I've been learning from them for 15 years and documenting it in my book. So now I think that I'm just glad to see that more people are waking up to the, I don't want to say competition among systems, but simply the fact that there are, different approaches to governance and that we can learn from each other. And the thing about Asia, of course, is that since most of the countries in Asia are former Western colonies, they have learned a fair bit already by osmosis uh, and by experience from Western societies. But the reverse, of course, has not taken place. And the argument in my book, The Futurization, is not that Asian systems will dominate, but rather that they're taking their rightful place and that there can be a very fruitful global society and global conversation. I'm not a declinist about the West at all, but I'm for a much more balanced global view across the different cultural and political systems that exist in the world. And note, I do not champion China in the least. Right. Um, And I'm I'm
0: interested in your take on China. One of your... Your fellow futurists or strategic thinkers in Singapore, Kishore Mabubani, I'm sure you know him, I'm sure you know him personally, um, he's been on the show several times. He's more of an apologist for China. What, what, what is your take on China's place in this world of movement? You note in the book that there's enormous internal movement within China, and in some ways, it's symbolic, for better or worse, of the new century.
1: Well, China has been a country that's very representative of internal mobility and migration. You know, uh, every you know, Chinese New Year holiday, right, is the largest mass migration in human history. As people circulate in the country, the Chinese diaspora is the largest diaspora in the world. Though one of the things I point out in the book is that the Indian diaspora will probably eclipse the Chinese diaspora in the coming uh, couple of decades, given that India's per capita population is much younger. And young Indians are far more likely to emigrate than young Chinese today, and al- along with a whole host of geopolitical factors. On the geopolitics, um, my view is that China's rise as a superpower affirms global multipolarity. It does not replace it. It does not become number one. China will never be number one and be a global hegemon the way the United States uh, you know, achieved on paper and in reality after World War II. Just you know, a simple fact to bear this out. Uh, in 1945, the United States represented 50% of global GDP. Uh, China today represents 15%, right? So just to be clear that whether it was Pax Britannica or Pax Americana, these were truly unique circumstances that will not be replicated uh, with China's rise. So we will have a multipolar world in which the West as a whole And America in particular, and Europe in particular, remain very strong anchors of the system. And not only is this world multipolar, but Asia itself is multipolar because China does not represent Asia. China is a part of Asia. China is a pillar of Asia. China is the most important country in Asia. But there are 3.5 billion, billion of the B, Asians who are not Chinese. And China doesn't speak for them. And in fact, most of them, almost all of them, are incredibly suspicious of China. Do you remember a year ago when there were these debates in the Western media and newspapers saying China is winning the narrative war, China's vaccine diplomacy is um, winning it friends and allies around the world? And I just shook my head and said, what planet are you living on? Because the majority of the human population lives in Asia and most Asians are not Chinese. And not a single one of us non-Chinese Asians has any debate or dispute as to where the virus came from and what China's intentions are. So you really have to be kind of out of your mind at some level or not be sharing the same planet that I'm on uh, to think that China is somehow a great sympathetic force in the world. So, Talking yeah. about sharing planets, Parag,
0: mm. um, we had Lawrence Bergreen on the show last year. He's written a wonderful book about Francis Drake, Elizabeth I, and the beginnings of the British Empire, which in the 16th century, which of course resulted eventually in the colonization of North America. Similar thing seems to be happening now, but only it's in outer space in terms of movement. Um, Elon Musk, of course, is SpaceX. Jeff Bezos is a race into space. What's your take on this beginnings of the supposed colonization of space in the context of movement, in context of uh Shifting around the planet. Is this um, part of the narrative or is it a distraction?
1: I'm generally a bit more focused on what's happening here on, on Earth. Um, I do talk about. But it's about, real.
0: I mean, billions of dollars yeah. are being poured into
1: this. Sure, sure. Uh, but, you know, we spend trillions of dollars on infrastructure right here on this planet. And I'm interested in how we use it to terraform new ge- geographies. And terraforming is a sci fi term for what is the process of colonizing on a foreign planet, right? So, you know, making habitable the moon or Mars. But I have a chapter in this book about terraforming Siberia and terraforming the tundra and the, you know, the sort of northern expanses of uh, Russia and Canada, which, again, are the two largest countries on the planet that are more or less depopulated. That have vast spaces that are habitable for humankind and i asked the question as to whether we could achieve some kind of a redistribution or resettlement of large numbers of people to these more habitable areas now one caveat just because a place is um, more livable than parts of africa and south asia are becoming it doesn't mean that they're problem free there are forest fires in siberia and heat waves and all kinds of other, you know, sort of disastrous conditions. So in some ways it is a very turbulent geography, you know, you know certainly uh, more manageable, though, than moving to the moon or to Mars. So I'm, I'm interested in these big questions about where, again, billions of people can and will likely resettle uh, in the years ahead. So, you know, the space race is super interesting. You know, my dad, I think, is holding on to a ticket on one of these, uh, I think, take your pick, uh, you know, space tourism ventures. Uh, It's certainly something I'm interested in. But I'm trying to, you know, solve the problem of our human geography, our distribution on on this planet right now.
0: Uh, As you say, uh, one of the themes in the book is that uh, places that haven't been habitable will become habitable. So nature will drive different kinds of habitation. I was just in Kazakhstan. I know you do a lot of work there. And in Kazakhstan, they're recreating nature indoors in their uh, shopping malls, creating beaches. To what extent will, or conceivably in the future, will um, we we'll be living indoors rather than outdoors? And, and how will that impact how we move? Or-
1: or underground, um, you know. Right. So I, I I look at these scenarios in the book. I I have a chapter on what I call air conditioned nations. You know, I look at uh, Singapore and the United Arab Emirates and these domed glass climate controlled kind of you know micro cities, micro climates in very hot tropical or desert environments, and how many people they can sustain. And for poorer societies, how we might need to return to these kinds of communal architectures and social practices where people get together in architectural spaces that are channeling the wind or that have some some degree of you know sort of um centralized air conditioning or district cooling through underground water aqueducts you know shared bath spaces where water is running low so the kind of bathhouse culture that actually is obviously characteristic of much of the world that is running dry today and even potentially underground cities and underground developments Um, and where those might be and so forth. So all all of these scenarios, I think, Andrew, are already being considered, depending on whether a country has the foresight and the money to be able to explore them.
0: You suggest that we are, and, and I think that's the real point of the book, is that we are infinitely adaptable and that we will shape and reshape our history according to Climatic and economic and cultural change in the twenty-first century, which I think you're right on. Um, but the subtext, the the thing clouding your book or the events clouding your book, is the environmental crisis. And of course, um, some of the species that that um, that that are facing this uh, global warming are going extinct. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, New York Times ran a piece about the worst case extinction scenario and dozens of species, according to the CNN report out last month, are set to be declared extinct. We can't recreate nature, can we, Parag? How does the our destruction of nature and of so many species in the world, how does that play out in your world, your 21st century world of MOVE?
1: well it's not something that occurs according to our kind of you know chrono- chronological you know sort of but we've instances. done it i mean it's not just it's, haphazard exactly. it's not coincidental exactly it's been unfolding for a long time it's it isn't i mean and obviously species that are extinct are not coming back uh you know anytime soon you know notwithstanding the woolly mammoth project in in siberia hey, what, but like Brian i know you're coming
0: to san francisco uh Later this month, to do something with Stuart Brand, who's a big uh, uh, champion of of bringing the willy mammoths back. So maybe we can get
1: Stuart on the show to talk about this too. That would be awesome. Um, But look, you know, I remember that we have lost species without even fully appreciating many of their roles in the food chain and in our delicate ecosystems. And I think that's obviously tragic. Um, So the question becomes, you know, as we move to new geographies, are are those environments habitable right? you know uh, do we have the right um, kind of conditions for soil and pollination and you know air quality and the nitrogen cycle and all of these things that we don't understand well enough in terms of the whether how the damage that we're doing today impacts them, which then impacts us again as we as we move and that's that's all that's those are part of the reasons why Andrew I, I kind of you know I set out to do this, kind of one-way exploration of a singular movement of large, you know, mass or swaths of mankind from south to north. But the, the final, the conclusion that I draw, you know, early in the book and then explained throughout is that actually we will be moving, right? Because no place is necessarily guaranteed to be ecologically stable, especially if more and more people move there. So you have the environmental challenge of whether or not any habitat is as predictable and stable as they once were. And the second challenge is to the extent those habitats exist, if we pour into them, we almost create a tragedy of the commons effect where we ruin them. So a lot of this book is dedicated to this question of what I call, you know, pre-design. How do you pre-design a new model of civilization? One in which we are more mobile, yes but one in which we are also more circular and sustainable in our practices around so energy. It's the, it's food the, and the water.
0: donut economy writ large. Parag, finally, um, you are suggesting that we still have a degree of agency and we can shape our world. And the global citizens, I think, are going to shape them. You are a global citizen, whether you like it or not. You were just featured yeah. in Tatler, the old magazine of the british aristocracy maybe the new aristocracy are global citizens like yourself what is the moral responsibility of global citizens like yourself to shape this century
1: i'm glad you asked i think that's a wonderful uh, question to on. i think that you know we first of all in our own domestic politics because everyone does live somewhere even if they are in anywhere uh which is to say if you are in a in a polity you know in a country like britain that doesn't fully appreciate the value of more open borders of a you know sort of smart balanced immigration policy. It is a very self defeating approach, and that's of course what the U.S. has experienced during the pandemic or during the Trump administration. It's what Britain is going through right now. If you look at the hundred thousand you know worker uh trucker shortage among other shortages in the economy so people who have the experience of multiple locations and and have seen what smart and not smart systems do with respect to policy choices it's obviously very important to articulate those and as you know andrew that's what i do in my day-to-day life is to travel around and work with governments and companies and try and get them towards more uh, pragmatic uh you know sort of sort of policies so that's that's one very key responsibility of a so-called global citizen and of course to not simply focus on one society and helping one society but but as many as you can you know and i think of myself not actually as a global citizen so much as what i call a citizen of everywhere you know wherever i go and live i mean this is what people have call, call me <laughs> but uh but you you uh, yeah
0: D- david goodhart will have to write a book about you um parag so <laughs> uh, what so so your new book uh move is is wonderfully researched um rich controversial hard-hitting uh wise congratulations on the book uh, i know it got exerted in late how people have an opportunity to read it what else are you reading these days as you've been stuck in Singapore or listening to or watching? What other things of wisdom can you offer uh, our, our viewers? I, I've been reading uh, Fiona Hill's There's Nothing for You Here. She's going to be on the show tomorrow. Oh, and I think wow. Her book, in a very interesting way, dovetails with move. But what are you reading?
1: Give her Give her a big virtual hug. She's one of my, my favorite people. She's an old mentor and colleague and friend. Um, you know we, we spent a lot of time together. We overlapped at Brookings. Um, so that that's wonderful, I, I think the world of her. And, um, and uh, so I've actually been collecting a very, very long reading list, which I have in my Asana task app. And the second this book tour is over, I'm just gonna you know find a hammock uh on the beach nearby here in Singapore and either a pile of physical books this anything high, in particular or...
0: you're looking to forward to Parak uh
1: I can if consult my list I can like, consult my list right now and tick them off you believe me I'm adding new books to it every single day where's my uh where is my reading list here in Asana here it is okay so I'm gonna read the hunter gatherer's guide to the 21st century uh, I'm going to read Paul Hawkins' book, Regeneration. Yeah, I've talked um, to him. I'm going to read uh, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita's book, The Invention of Power. I'm going to read Simon Mundy's book. He's from the FT. His book is called The Race for Tomorrow. It's just coming out. Um, that's just a, that's just a few.
0: Well, Parakana, as always, a pleasure and an honor. Congratulations again on this new book, Move. Very, very interesting, as always, with your work. Uh, Keep well, keep reading, keep thinking, and keep traveling. I think you'll be back on the road soon. I hope to see you in in San Francisco at the Long Now Bar, what, uh, later this month in October?
1: Literally next week. Good. See you then. Keep well. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Take care.